Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. This has been kind of a tough series to preach through. I told somebody I have to get my life in order by preaching through this. Last week I preached about husbands, and so the week before that, I, to get my life in order, I actually bought Bethany flowers. <laughs> I hate buying flowers. I, I hate spending money on something that's going to die, but my fear is if that's my excuse, somebody will say that about me. <laughs> uh, next week we speak about fathers, and so I guess this week I need to get that part of my life in order too. We've been going through the Christian household. We've talked about the relationship between husbands and wives, and now we get to enter the relationship between parent and child. Um, This week, by focusing on the child. And so, from Colossians 3, I want to bring you a message that I have titled, Foundations for a Thriving Society, a Child's Obedience. Um, So if you haven't turned there, please do turn to Colossians 3, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. (coughs) Colossians chapter 3, and like I've been doing, I think I'm going to start reading in verse 17 once again. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I was walking in the San Diego Safari Park with a friend of mine. And we were attempting to have a serious conversation about some recent events that had gone on in his life. Anytime a person enters a place like that, you expect you're going to encounter families, meaning not just parents, but children. And while it was slow because it was the middle of the week, indeed, that's what we found. We saw a lot of parents with their younger children and younger kids. And so it was not uncommon for us to be interrupted by children moving about. And at one point, during the midst of a conversation, a young child kept coming up to us several times, just kind of trying to explore and and see what was going on. It indeed distracted us. It interrupted us. Joining in, the, the mother apologized just profusely. But for my friend and I, the child really was of no bother. It did not matter to us. In fact, I think both of us were pleased to see children and observe that they were learning and having fun. And so again, the child was no bother to us. Later on in that day, though, knowing that I was coming to this text in Colossians, verse 20 of chapter 3, 
I began to think about children obeying parents and just our thoughts about children in general. I thought about the various encounters we have. Specifically, as we were walking through the park, just how frequently my friend and I were disrupted in some form or another. And again, it didn't matter. Never was it an annoyance. Never did it aggravate me. What did strike me is that the day before, as I was traveling and had this longer layover in an airport, I wanted to get some work done. And knowing the various clubs and lounges that are available to me, I, I chose one in particular. It had many benefits. You know, unlimited food, unlimited drinks, unlimited Wi-Fi. But I didn't choose the club for that. I chose the club because of its one policy. No children. How can I reconcile one day going to a place because it has no children, and yet the next day be okay with children. And that's where my thoughts began to, to go. It occurred to me that at different times, at different situations in our lives, we view children differently. If we are joyful, then we look upon children and see them as being enjoyable in our lives. If we're busy, they're an inconvenience. If we're working and they can work with us, then they're useful. And if they are helpful, then they are appreciated. It's as though at some times children are to be enjoyed and at other times they're simply to be endured. <laughs> Views of children do not vary just based on circumstances, though. They also vary based on eras and different time periods throughout history. In the past, in the time when Paul wrote this text... They were viewed as property. Children were merely a means to accomplish their parents' will, and specifically to accomplish their father's will. One person writes that children were simply to do as their father desires, treating everything as it belonged to the father. Dio Chrysostom writes of his era, Perhaps you do not know that in many states, which have exceedingly good laws, fathers may even imprison or sell them, their sons. And they have a power even more terrible than any of these. For they are actually allowed to put their sons to death without any trial or even without bringing any accusation at all against them. That was a view at one time, coming from the fact that they were viewed as property. A more modern view sees children not as property, but as problems. They're a disruption to life at times, and they cause us grief. We see hotels and resorts that are specifically designed to exclude children. In recent years, there's been push in the airline industry to ban younger children, or create flights specific to families, or even create children's sections on planes. I've heard some go as far as to say that parents should pay more if they're going to bring a child on the plane. But the Lord, he brings about a different view of children. They're not any of these things. Rather, they're a promise. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage. We see in Genesis that to Abraham, he was blessed by the Lord through a promise of a child. 
And indeed, eventually he had the provision of a child. To Mary in the New Testament, the promise of a child was the means of imparting salvation to the world. Children are the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. As believers, then, we look upon children not as property, not as problems, but as promises. Much like the Lord's design of men and women and husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, children are part of that plan as well. They ensure the continuity of life until the return of Christ. They tell us that life will go on, that there will always be people here until Christ returns. If the family is the basic structure of society, and society's success is dependent upon the family's success, as I keep trying to say each week, then we must consider how children play into that success as well. By definition, the family does not include a husband and wife alone. But if the Lord chooses to bless a certain couple, then indeed it includes those children. And so we cannot look at children as a mere afterthought. They're not an inconvenience to our plans, but rather they're indispensable to the Lord's plans. Children are essential to his plans. They're essential in terms of how they're obedient to the Lord. And that's what we see in our text. Obedience is not merely a demand because it makes life easier. What we'll see is that obedience is how the Lord is accomplishing his will. I don't think I'm out of line, actually, to say that obedient children are a sign of a successful society. And to the contrast, disobedient children are signs of a society that is failing. In his book, A Well-Ordered Family, Cotton Mather writes, This is very certain. There is no point of religion more certainly and commonly rewarded with blessing in this world than that of rendering unto parents the dues that pertain unto them. A signal prosperity, even in this world, usually attends those children who are very obedient or serviceable unto their parents. To those who obey the commandment of their fathers, thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall stand before me forever. And so we come to our text this morning in Colossians 3.20, and we read, Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. As we look upon that text, I want all of us, whether parent or child, to see not merely the importance of obedience, but I want us to see how crucial it is to the Lord's ordering of society and his plan of salvation. And so I want you to note four points and four aspects of this decree to obey parents. I want you to note first the stipulation of the decree. From the outset, the condition is very clear. Children, obey your parents. There's not a lot of room for misinterpreting that verse. From life to death, the relationship between parent and child is a very special one. At birth, as set forth by 2 Corinthians chapter 12, It is expected that parents will indeed care for their children, and they will do so physically, emotionally, financially, and spiritually. And then in a letter to Timothy, specifically his first epistle to Timothy, Paul reverses that role. 
in a parent's later years, it is not the parent taking care of the children, but rather it is the children now caring for their parents as they become elderly. And so we have this unique relationship between parent and child. In the earlier years, while parents care for their children, the expectation then is that children will obey their parents. Obedience is a virtue of excellence. It's considered to be a very good thing. To the contrary, the lack of obedience, disobedience, suggests something else. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2 just simply say, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for peoples will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. The next verse continues on with that list, but I think you see what I'm getting at right there. Notice what it indicates. That disobedience to parents is a sign of the Lord's return, that it is imminent, as a sign of the last days. Disobedience is a serious sin, and we know it's serious because it's evidenced by the harsh discipline that it receives in Scripture. Read with me Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of a place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our son. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. First off, see what happens where disobedience leads. It ends up being a wayward path. As a parent, this captures one of my greatest fears. I certainly don't enjoy my child's disobedience, but disobedience is not my primary concern in one sense. My greatest fear is that by not learning to obey me, my children will turn their back on the Lord. And that's what we see. And then notice the text. Not only does that child end up on a wayward path going away from the Lord, but then we see the consequences. It says, they will stone him. And then verse 21 says, so that you purge the evil from your midst. That's how disobedience is described. It is described as evil. Exodus 21.5 indicates that for striking a parent, a child can receive a penalty of death. How could a good and loving God subscribe or sanction such a harsh penalty? Because disobedience is a severe sin. First, parents have been delegated the Lord's authority to care for their children. It is by this means that the Lord is seeking to provide for children and to raise them up to maturity. And so to disobey parents is to reject that structure and that authority of the Lord. 
I think Paul Tripp has gotten to the root of the cause when he shares this. Rejection of parental authority is a rejection of God's authority. And the rejection of God's authority, in fact, claiming his authority as his own, it is an attempt to be God. I think we all recognize that disobedience in general is our attempt to control our own lives, to be Lord over our own lives, rejecting God's authority. But in this case, we're applying it to children's relationship with their parents. We see the severity in passages like Exodus 21, 17 and Leviticus 29. And there, disobedience is equated to rebellion against God. That means that when a child disobeys, that child is not merely rebelling against his parents. He's rebelling against God. And so to obey is to come under the authority of parents because they've been placed in that position by the Lord. Notice that nothing's said about a parent's character. We've noted this several times. Wives' submission was not dependent upon a husband's character. A husband's love is not dependent upon a wife's character. And now we see that a child's obedience is not dependent on their parent's character. Whether the parent is kind and compassionate or hostile and selfish, the Lord asks for obedience regardless. It may be that one apparent is affectionate, while the other is really a little more mean. The call for the obedience is equal for both. Even when you think they're being unfair, the call to obey is still there. To you parents, though, this doesn't authorize you to take advantage of your children. In fact, if we take that heavenly mindset that we're encouraged to take in Colossians 3.1, the beginning of the chapter, we begin to take in and look at things through a heavenly worldview and, and recognize that in the scope of eternity, we should realize that these aren't even our children. Does that startle you a little bit? That's contrary to what we're used to saying. We take ownership, take possession. These are my kids. But whether you have a child or not is not actually up to you. It's up to the Lord's sovereign choice. And they come to you as a means to bless you. And so they are his children. Because they're not ours and they belong to the Lord then. It means we're tasked with shepherding and stewarding them for him on his behalf. This makes the call for parents much more serious. And it brings greater meaning to words like those in Proverbs 22.6. which says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, you are to steward your children children you're to obey your parents look at proverbs 6 proverbs 6 verses 20 through 23 my son keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching bind them on your heart always tie them around your neck when you walk they will lead you when you lie down they will watch over you and when you awake they will talk with you for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
Satan finds no delight in a child's obedience. We know that he will do whatever he can to hinder that and to cause children to disobey. That just means children then need to be prepared and be ready even more, seeking to overcome Satan's will by instead obeying God's will, which is to obey parents. We may not like that, or children may not like that, but we have to recognize what's taking place here. That again, this is the Lord's will for bringing them to maturity. And what parents are doing is establishing, for lack of a better term, a safe zone for children to grow. I just say that with this rule, they they may establish a pillar or a fence post. And then they implement this rule and this rule. And when you connect them, you have this area. And they've created a zone for you to run within. Within that zone, there's a lot of freedom. At the same time, it gives you a place, it gives the children a place that is secure to see what works and what doesn't. As an example, parents could say, don't run in the street. And that establishes one of those pillars. You can run all you want, wherever you want in that zone just not beyond into the street. That way if you run, if you hit a wall or something, sure, it will hurt, but it teaches you a lesson. If the wall hurt, how much more would the car hurt if I had ran into the street? If they hadn't given you that barrier, the first time you run into the street and meet a car, the consequences could be catastrophic. It could be death. What they've done or what parents have done is given a place for children to learn that lesson without such a high cost. And so the text, children, obey your parents. It comes from a good God who intends it for a child's goodness. And that's the stipulation of the decree, to obey. I want you to note, second, the scope of the decree the scope of the decree. So that the Lord may be exalted, his decree is exhaustive. The Lord's command here is extensive. It covers so much, though, because it's meant to show who God is. This command to obey, it's, it's made difficult by that one word, everything. Most of us struggle to obey one thing, let alone all things. And yet it is in all things that children are to obey. The Lord's word here does not set any regulations about what to obey. So a child can't say, I have to obey this, but not that. It's not like he's giving a list and and the child can say, okay, I I have to wash the dishes and I have to clean my room, but mow the lawn, that's not on the list. No, it says everything. Neither does the Lord set limits. It's as if to say, you only need to to obey five times a day or a thousand times in your lifetime. We don't see that. And the Lord does not set parameters so that a child only obeys when he or she feels like it or when he or she is inspired to do good. No, the Lord declares in his word, children in all things, obey your parents. Because of the totality of that word, everything, obedience is not optional. It's required. There is only one limitation upon obedience, and it's the same principle that we talked about with a wife's submission. 
We discussed it two weeks ago, that principle found in Acts chapter 5. And it is there that the apostles, they've been arrested a couple of times for proclaiming the Lord's word. In fact, they've been found in violation of that prohibition. And, and twice now, they've been called before the high priest. And the, the council, the high priest of this council, is only one stipulation on them. Do not teach in the name of Christ. And then Peter responds in Acts five twenty nine: We must obey God rather than men. That statute applies to all Christians at all times. That means that it applies then to children's obedience as well. Because God is Lord, because he is Lord over all, all priority is given to him first and foremost. And so a child must ensure that indeed they're obeying the Lord's statutes. This is the only time, though, when a child may disobey his parents. When it compromises his obedience to the Lord. As parents, hopefully we're not asking them to compromise their obedience, especially because the younger ones still don't have the discernment. We're supposed to be teaching them the Lord's statutes. And so the Lord is asking children to obey in everything. Everything seems extreme. It's easy for us to argue that the Lord is being too stringent, and yet the strictness of this requirement is essential to the growth of children. Given the ability to not obey in one thing, it becomes easier to not obey in the next thing. It's like Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened when he wouldn't release the Israelites. With each resistance, his heart becomes more and more hardened. In the same way, a child who disobeys begins to harden his heart. Over time, that heart becomes calcified and so hard that it is not influenced by anything obedience to parents is just a training ground for greater obedience. Obedience in school, obedience in work, of course. But most importantly, eventually obedience to the Lord. Surrendering to parents is a means to prepare us for, prepare children for total surrender to the Lord. And the Lord desires hearts that are soft and moldable, willing to submit to him as Lord so that that heart may be conformed to Christ. But a heart that is hard and unbreakable will not yield to the leading of the Spirit. And so this call to obey in everything is critical because it is preparing a child's heart for the Lord's work in their lives. And so we could say that the scope of the decree is exhaustive now so that by obedience he may be exalted in a child's life later. I want you to note third, the structure of the decree. The structure of the decree. Chrysostom writes, this is a different Chrysostom that I spoke of or quoted earlier. That was Dio, a speaker and, and a philosopher and historian of the Roman Empire. This is John Chrysostom, who lived about 250 years later. He writes, see how Paul would have us live not only according to natural principles, but prior to this, according to what is pleasing to God. That is the structure that we see here. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. The natural conclusion of the command to obey parents is to do so because it would please parents. That's not what Paul writes. 
Certainly a parent is pleased when his or her child obeys. I dare say anybody is pleased when their will and their directive is obeyed. That's implied by the text, but that's not what's written. Paul concludes it saying, because it is pleasing to God. That one phrase is the framework for the Christian life. This is how every Christian should structure their lives. Everything a person does, says, or accomplishes is determined by whether or not it's pleasing to the Lord. We saw this in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. It's not about pleasing people. Although we could say or, or expect that if the Lord is satisfied, people are usually satisfied too. It's about pleasing the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read to you the first 10 verses. They say, for, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we always are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I find this to be a very beautiful and encouraging passage. And I just want to draw out and look very quickly, noticing how he compares our earthly dwelling with our heavenly one. One is described as nothing but a tent, something that is temporary in nature. But the other is described as a permanent building. It is this permanent place in heaven that is our dwelling. It is there where we are most secure, longing to be because it is where we belong. But for now we reside here on earth, a temporary place. And so we're away from home. And then look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We once again see that the intention of the Christian life is to please the Lord. To the Ephesians, Paul is a little more direct, saying it plainly, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Applied to children then, their objective, their motivation is to please the Lord, and he is pleased by their obedience to their parents. 
To those who want to argue against God, this appears to be very authoritarian. As though the Lord is only pleased because he expects people to just submit to him. But there are very practical reasons for God to be pleased by obedience. And it's not just because people submitting to his authority or his will. We read in scripture that the Lord desires that all people would be saved. That is to say that his heart, his desire is that there would be a relationship between him and all people. The very people he created. And what did we just learn about the scope of the decree? How did I end that? That the Lord commands obedience in everything. And he does so because in surrendering to parents, they are being prepared to surrender to the Lord. That is, obedience to parents is meant to lead a child to a relationship with the Lord. And so obedience to parents pleases the Lord because it can result in something meaningful that he desires, a relationship. But our Lord is not just some self-centered being, just simply trying to get what he wants here, that relationship. Indeed, this does please the Lord because he does get what he wants. But what he wants is also in the best interest of people. So the Lord desires that relationship with people, but that relationship is also what our children need. And so children need the Lord at their side in this life. And they certainly don't want to miss being at his side in the next life. This is why obedience pleases the Lord, because it drives people to a relationship with him. Something he wants and something they need. And so because obedience pleases the Lord, it should please us. And so I want you to know, finally, the source of the decree. The appeal for obedience here is both acceptable and possible because it is sanctioned by the Lord. Though the letter was written by the hand of Paul, it is decreed by the inspiration of the Lord. The call for obedience here doesn't come from parents, although it would be natural for parents to be the one to demand obedience. If it were, though, we could accuse parents of acting only in their best interest. In fact, that was a common accusation of mine against my mom. You only had me to do the work for you. But because this call comes from the Lord, we can't accuse our parents or the Lord of acting in their interest. If the parents had said, you need to obey me, then we might say, well, you're acting in your interest. But no, the Lord said it on their behalf. And the Lord doesn't say, obey me. He says, obey parents. So we know that he's not acting just in his interest. In fact, because God is the very source of the decree, it gives both parents and children confidence in the excellence and the virtue of this command. And because this decree comes from God, its importance is best understood when we understand who God is. Think about who God is. Think about who he is and what that means for this text and the call to obedience. Just meditate briefly upon the character of God. First, our God is good. His nature is good so that all that he does will be in accordance with that goodness. He will never do anything that opposes that goodness. 
And so if God is good, never acting contrary to that goodness, then we can trust that the call to obedience here is also about God's goodness and will bring about God's goodness in a child's life. The Lord is not only good, he is perfect. And the Lord will never compromise his imperfection by initiating something that's imperfect. Colossians 3.20 here is it's a manifestation of the Lord's perfection meant to lead children towards perfection. We also know that the the Lord is all-wise and all-knowing. That means that he knows all things about all things, that he knows exactly what is going on in a person's life. He knows what they need and when they need it. Notice he doesn't call on parents to obey children. He doesn't call children to obey anybody else. No, the call is for children to obey parents. And that's part of his perfect divine plan in which now as children, that is the time to be cultivating an attitude of obedience. If not done now, it would be much harder to develop this type of disposition or this demeanor of obedience at a later time in life. Furthermore, he has complete wisdom. And so the Lord's going to use parents at the right time in a child's life. And so, children, if your mother or father is asking you to do something, something that's excruciatingly difficult, something that may even make you angry, we can trust that in his wisdom the Lord has allowed that. That he's using it to develop children. That is to say that obedience is used to sanctify them to conform children to the image of Christ. There's something very special about the Lord being the source of this command. We as parents could appeal to our children to obey, to call upon them to to follow and fulfill our directives. But we can do nothing to help our children obey. But God doesn't only ask for obedience, but he makes obedience possible. Through salvation, he's given children and all people his spirit. And it is the work of that spirit that helps children to obey. It's not just that God is asking children to obey, but he is also the God who enables them to obey. And so he's he's not only the source of the decree, he's the support for the decree. For most people, whether child or adult, obedience is costly. Because so many people, professing believers, spend their lives wrestling with the question, well, how far can I go and still be called a Christian? What we see, though, is that by demanding complete allegiance, the Lord is demanding complete obedience. For any believer, he, he call, his call is of total obedience to himself. But here, for children, his call of total obedience is to their parents. Obedience to the Lord begins with obedience at home. One of the authors for the Daily Bread once wrote, might have even been recently, I don't know, said, every conscientious parent recognizes how difficult it is to exercise his God-given authority when it is tested. The pressure to give in can become overpowering. And then he goes on, the author, to speak of a mother who had a trying time with a child who it seemed was trying to do his best to make it his life's ambition to disobey 
every directive that she gave. And so it says she came to a point when she couldn't handle the hassle that resulted whenever she said no to her young son. And after an especially trying day, she finally flung up her hands and shouted, All right, Billy, do whatever you want. Now let me see you disobey that. (laughs) Obedience is part of the Lord's will, though. It's not for the sake of just authority. It's the sake for salvation. Training a child to surrender to his or her parents is preparing that child to surrender to his or her Lord. The Lord suggests that if we love him, we will obey his commands. John writes in his first epistle that if we love God, we will obey him. And if a child loves God, then that child will obey his parents. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed in our fallen flesh, all of us, whether parent or child, do indeed struggle with obedience, Lord. Father, may we understand and look upon the importance of your decree that children obey in all things, not simply for the sake of authority, but as a means to impart and drive our children to you, Lord. And so, Father, as children, those that are here, may they they see the need to obey their parents as a way to obey you. And Father, as parents, may we then recognize the responsibility and importance that comes with that. May we recognize that obedience isn't about what we want. But rather, we're trying to cultivate children who seek you out, Lord. And so, Father, we we thank you for your word and the way it impacts our lives in ways like this. May we draw closer to you as a result of it today. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.